A steadily rising number of New Zealanders are dying from swine flu as the new virus continues to sweep the world. It's been described by the World Health Organization as the fastest-moving pandemic the world's seen. New Zealand was one of the first countries to face swine flu and at the most dangerous time in winter. So, how is the country coping, and what lessons are being learnt? Our health correspondent Karen Brown investigates. I sneezed like you wouldn't believe. Probably nine or ten sneezes every time I sneezed, and that was probably the the biggest factor for me. No headache, but really sore pelvic bones and long bones for a couple of days, and my legs. Janet Dunbar's a specialist nurse in the Porirua community. It's one of the lower socio-economic areas in the Wellington region where swine flu took off. Her own cold was mild, and she thought little of it at first. I was really surprised when I tested positive because the reports I'd heard that people were going down like a ton of bricks, really, and quite a few of my patients who were big people and and compromised in comorbidities, it had hit them hard. So I was surprised that I tested positive because it hadn't hit me as hard as I thought it was hitting people. Wellington microbiologist Mark Jones has also had to take time off work because of swine flu. The swine flu was unpleasant. Headache from hell and uh, muscle pains, but no worse than seasonal flu. While not worse than seasonal flu, swine flu quickly became the only flu in Wellington. The number of people seeing their doctor because of flu reached epidemic levels in the region. Tim Blackmore, head of Wellington Hospital Laboratories, was one of the first to notice it. So this is the PCR room, but these are the, the actual little... They don't look very impressive, they just look like um, blenders, don't they? Yeah, they do. But um, they've got all the computer software and it's heating and cooling and amplifying the nucleic material acid to uh, detect the, the virus if it's present. Lab tests on patient samples early last month had Dr Blackmore's team confirming 15 new cases a day. He was alarmed to see the number of those in hospital in Wellington surpassing the rate in the hotbed of swine flu in Australia, Melbourne. When I looked on the federal Australian government website, they had 18 inpatients for the whole of the state of Victoria, which I presume is 4 or 5 million people. And for our population of 300,000 or thereabouts, we had 18 people at that stage ourselves, and we're now up to 29 current inpatients. So we've got a very high rate of hospital admissions, at least tenfold higher than Victoria, as far as I can tell. Even for an infectious diseases specialist such as himself, the virus was looking very infectious. This seems to be an incredibly extensive outbreak. None of us have experienced anything like this before. I'm nudging 50. People who've lived longer than me can talk about earlier epidemics, but for me I haven't seen these sorts of rates of disease before. Swine flu isn't the first influenza pandemic New Zealand's seen, and it won't be the last. The Spanish flu pandemic from 1918 to 1919 killed nearly 4% of the world's population, 50 million people. In New Zealand, 8,000 people died over two months, with the toll among Māori particularly high. And the thing was, they came in with terrific temperatures. And if we couldn't get those temperatures down, they dropped suddenly below subnormal, and they started delirium. And once they got very delirious, we just couldn't save them. The Asian and Hong Kong pandemics followed in 1957 and 1968, killing one to two million each. Swine flu's an influenza A H1N1 virus. So is the main seasonal flu circulating in this country this winter. 
What makes it different and threatening is that it's a brand new mix of swine, human and avian flu strains that's never been seen before. Only the elderly are thought to have any measure of protection at all against it, and it can spread like a bushfire. Wellington's Dr Mark Jones. Flu A is a, is a particularly adaptable virus. It's got just a, a tiny little genetic segment, but it seems capable of anything from causing um, you know, mild, trivial illness to, to life-threatening disease. And it's, it's extraordinarily adaptable, and it infects uh, so many hosts, pigs, chickens, you know, bird flu, swine flu, and the way they intermingle and reassort. They're biologically amazing agents. Dr Mark Jacobs is the Director of Public Health. Unlike seasonal flu, where most people have been exposed to it before or they've been immunised, and so we, we might get 10% of the country getting sick during, during a winter with a seasonal flu. With pandemic influenza, the virus is a new one, so people haven't been exposed to it before, they haven't got immunity, and so we can actually get a third or a half of New Zealanders getting sick. And we would expect that would happen over just a period of a few months, for instance. About 300 people die every year from flu in this country. Swine flu is likely to cause more deaths because of the larger number of people who'll be infected. Swine flu arose unexpectedly on the world stage. It caught New Zealand unawares as well, but not ill-prepared. It all happened on what should have been a typically quiet Anzac weekend. GP Wee Teo was on duty at Shore Care on Auckland's North Shore. Basically, it was, you know, it was a Anzac day. It was a quiet morning. We didn't expect anything to happen. But the first patient turned out, the father brought the kids in. He said that the, uh, he just, the son just came back from Mexico that morning. He think that the son got swine flu. And he asked me whether I know about swine flu. What's this illness thing? I said, I have no idea what swine flu is. Dr Teo says the boy's father had read about swine flu and as he himself knew nothing about it, they looked it up on the internet. Then another patient came in, also from nearby Rangitoto College. Another father brought the kids in, was concerned about swine flu. We talk about the same thing again and we look at the internet and there's more information coming through at the time. It's probably about three or 400 news articles, which as compared to the first one was a huge jump within an hour. Dr Teo says on a normal busy weekday it could have taken days to notice that another local clinic was seeing sick Rangitoto College students too. Dr Teo rang a specialist at Auckland Hospital for advice and was told to take as many tests as possible and to alert regional public health authorities. Julia Peters is the clinical director of the Auckland Regional Public Health Service. The doctor who was on call that day was clearly becoming aware of the situation and received a call from a GP on the North Shore and as a result of that he called me and once we had a bit more information I decided that we needed to meet in at our workplace and start making plans as to what we were going to do and how we were going to manage it. It was the start of a frantic time for the 200-strong regional health service. First, they needed to know if the students had swine flu or not. So we called in the laboratory and additional public health nurses and we phoned all the students and teachers who'd been on the trip and ascertained that approximately 13 of them were symptomatic. And we got all our packs prepared and then by about 6 o'clock that night we had our nursing teams on the road going out to visit these students and to take swabs from them. And we also at that point 
decided that it would be necessary to isolate the students and their families, so they were put into isolation at home. They sent swabs to the WHO regional lab in Melbourne, set up an emergency centre, sent teams to the airport to screen incoming travellers and began tracing contacts of those affected. Dr Peters says they had no real warning. We had some awareness through the WHO that there was potentially a novel influenza virus in Mexico, but the first formal warning we received from our own Ministry of Health actually was on the 25th of April, which was the day the students from the Rangitoto College party arrived back in New Zealand. Well, let's go to Mexico, where the latest reports are, quote, at least 20 and up to 81 people have died from the flu. Flu viruses usually come from South China or Southeast Asia, not Mexico. The Director of Public Health, Dr Mark Jacobs, says the first they knew about swine flu was on a secure website run by the World Health Organisation immediately before Anzac weekend. There seem to be quite high rates of more serious illness and and quite high death rates as a complication of of the, the infection. And certainly as the days went on, It appeared that the death rates in Mexico were higher than the death rates in in the US and then in Canada when they started getting cases. And it took a little while to, to sort through why that was. It was decided the virus here was the same one as in Mexico and the reason for the high death rate in Mexico was the high number of people who caught it. The Health Minister, Tony Ryle, was clearly concerned when he spoke to reporters on Anzac Sunday. The Ministry of Health officials advised me that there is no guarantee that these young people have the swine flu, but officials believe it is highly likely that they do. Looking back, Mr Ryle says there were huge uncertainties that first day. There was concern that we would end up with a very, very, very difficult situation if that was being replicated in New Zealand. But as time's moved on, concerns have dropped. But in those first 12 hours, my concern was to try and get a sense of what this meant for these individuals. Health officials stressed the virus would be mild to moderate for most people and they warned that those most vulnerable were pregnant women, children and those with chronic health conditions like asthma. Those who are obese were added to the list later. New Zealand already had comprehensive plans for a flu pandemic and it rolled them out immediately. Steve Brazier is the Health Ministry's National Pandemic Coordinator. When we had to stand up on the Anzac Day on Saturday, we actually knew what to do and who to call what systems to put in place, who to ring around the sector. I mean, the rule we have is no plan survives contact with the enemy. In this case, we're probably a bit harsh on ourselves because it has actually survived quite a bit of reality. Reality meant patrolling airport borders, containing the virus where it was detected and stamping it out where possible with the antiviral Tamiflu. It worked for about eight weeks, but events in Melbourne dictated what would happen next because of the large amount of travel between the two countries. On June the 11th, Melbourne residents heard there were five people in intensive care with swine flu. Since then, 50 people have died in Australia from swine flu. We're out in Doncaster, which is a suburb of Melbourne, about uh, 25 minutes out of Melbourne. Meet Alan Hampson, a leading spokesman on flu in Australia, despite the fact he retired in 2005. 
Until then, he was operating head of the WHO's collaborating centre in Melbourne. He still chairs Australia's influenza specialist group. He says it was just bad luck that the disease took off as it did in Melbourne. In all probability, there were one or more people out there who had such a mild infection with this virus or even a totally subclinical infection, which can happen. Maybe, you know, 20 or 30% of people have extremely mild or subclinical influenza, but they can still spread it. And, and I think that's, that is probably what has happened. Dr Hampson watched as sports officials and others downplayed or simply failed to understand flu. I've even heard silly things like uh, we'll have a we'll have a swine flu party, you know, let's get infected now and get it out of the way and maybe it'll be milder if we have it now. Those people are probably unaware of the fact that, uh, you know, some of them may be suffering underlying conditions uh, and it might make them very ill, not just be something to get out of the way. The influenza expert says it's never wise to underestimate flu. There are normal healthy people who also succumb to influenza and if you don't look after yourself then you, you are actually playing Russian roulette with flu. Dr Hampson said all authorities anywhere could do was to try to slow down the spread of the virus while production of a vaccine went into overdrive. On June the 11th, the WHO finally announced what was already clear. A pandemic was underway. It would become unstoppable. Health authorities here knew from events in Melbourne that containing it would become impossible. The Director of Public Health, Mark Jacobs. Once we started seeing the virus spread in Australia and start to spread quite rapidly, particularly in Melbourne, it was very much inevitable that we were going to start seeing spread here just because of the close transport links, obviously, that we have with Australia, the number of people travelling to and from every week and every day. Obviously, the virus wasn't going to go away. It was in our nearest neighbour. You know, we were going to start seeing local spread quite soon, which is what the experience was. The numbers of people going to their doctor began a steep climb that's ongoing. Epidemic levels of flu have been recorded in Wellington, Hutt Valley, Taupo, Rotorua, Ruapehu, Southland, Hawke's Bay and South Auckland. Lower socio-economic Māori and Pacific communities have been particularly hard hit. Lance Jennings is a leading virologist speaking here two weeks ago. What we're experiencing at the present time is the virus moving out of the main centres, Wellington, Christchurch, and starting to spread through Auckland more widely now, and moving out into the more rural communities of Hawke's Bay and Wairapa and out of Christchurch, down to Dunedin. And we're seeing the ongoing waves of infection in these different communities as the virus continues to circulate widely throughout New Zealand. Within the first week, New Zealand developed the ability to do its own genetic sequencing of the virus, so health authorities didn't have to wait for confirmation of those infected from Melbourne. Alicia and Wendy, they are really stars. Sue Huang heads the National Influenza Centre at the Crown Research Laboratory in Wallaceville, Upper Hutt, which is diagnosing and closely monitoring the swine flu virus in this country. She describes her staff as stars because they went from testing up to 20 samples a day to 350. Dr Huang says to do that, they had to bring in experts from the Ministry of Agriculture and Forestry and from the Kenny Peru Science Centre in Porirua and train them on the job. Some of the process, like processing the specimen, is very, very big manual work. There's no machine can help. And that process also is most 
infectious phase because the sample coming in with infectious virus, you need to inactivate the sample. And so we require people understand the microbiology and understand the basic molecular biology as well. But those are very highly qualified people. As long as they know the process in the laboratory, they're able to adapt very quickly. That was at the height of containment in mid-June, at the point officials moved from trying to delay the onslaught of the virus to simply managing its presence. The pandemic preparedness plan continued to underpin the response. But the brand new nature of the virus meant this was like flying a plane while building it. Of most help, says National Coordinator Steve Brazier, was a computer-based system linking 800 people, including all district health boards. The first few weeks were a bit of a blur looking back. We were working very long hours and that was happening around the country and pulling together crucial information and giving advice and working out what we should do next involved a lot of cooperation. It was useful having the, the core basis plan so you knew exactly what steps, why we were taking particular steps around the border, for example. It came back down, I guess, to the fact that we'd exercised with people, we'd rehearsed plans, we knew each other, but even given all that, it was a strain. The Director of Public Health, Mark Jacobs, says the plan covered the possibility of closing schools and big public gatherings and restricting travel into and within the country. But the plans were written for an even worse-case scenario, avian flu. Dr Jacobs says the relatively mild, if highly infectious, nature of swine flu means those options haven't been needed. We never really sat down and and formally said, well, do we want to stop people coming into the country? Because it never really got to that point where we thought that would be appropriate. But obviously those sorts of possibilities were were in the background because we were aware that they were in the planning. But the situation never looked like um, it was one that really warranted those sort of really disruptive measures. It did, however, warrant good border control, including health teams at airports and information on planes. Associate Professor Lance Jennings. That strategy has been very effective and allowed us to identify initial cases after the 25th of April and to contain the spread of this virus throughout New Zealand. And I think we've learnt a lot from that because no other country, as far as I'm aware, has been able to do that. Authorities realise that if there's a second wave of swine flu, more draconian border control will be needed. Treasury says based on the experience so far, the economic impact will be lower than even the 1-2% to fall in gross domestic product, or GDP, first envisaged for a mild outbreak. Mark Salden is the Treasury's manager for macro policy. That's around about a billion dollars in lost output. If you think it's a a 0.6 effect, is around about a billion dollars in lost output. If you think about the economic impact of the recession, that's about a $50 billion um, lost output to New Zealand. So in terms of materiality, that gives you a bit of a sense of of what we're talking about here. Mr Sowden says people haven't altered their behaviour, stopped eating out, for example. But there is 50% more sick leave being taken this winter. In terms of the economic impact of that, though, again, we don't have exact figures, but if you think about compared to a normal year when the economy is running at capacity, that lost sick leave has an impact on how much businesses are able to deliver. When the economy isn't running at full capacity like now, um, there is actually scope to make that up through things like other people working slightly longer hours or cancelling annual leave that people are having or things like that to actually make up. So in terms of the overall economic effect, we don't see that being particularly great. The Council of Trade Unions says the general response of employers has been patchy. Eileen Brown is a CTU policy advisor. 
the Ministry of Health have done some great messaging. I think the issues in regard to employment have been less We've been less prepared for those and we've come up against some unusual situations and the one about workers being sent home, who's directing them and will they be paid? How much sick leave have people got? Is the sick leave adequate? What happens if you run out of sick leave? What happens if your workplace is closed because of H1N1? So I think that there are some things that we have learned and the planning that was done in 2006 and 2007 has been useful but the employment issues that has been slower. Flu viruses can spread if you don't catch your coughs or sneezes hygienically, passing flu from person to person. Flu viruses can live on hard surfaces for several hours, making flu easy to spread. As authorities in the United Kingdom prepare to face swine flu in the Northern Hemisphere winter, the government here has ordered in an early cell-based vaccine which has been produced, but not fully tested, that would be used for health and other frontline workers. New Zealand's also third in line behind Australia and Singapore for an egg-based vaccine that's still being developed by CSL in Melbourne. The Health Minister, Tony Ryle. The best guess is that we've got some months to keep going through this. I believe that once we get through the normal winter seasonal flu period, you'll see a drop-off on pressure in the health services because if we're getting seasonal flu out of the system, we've still got our swine flu maybe there still, and so that the pressure will ease. But look, I think it's difficult to speculate exactly when this thing will finish. Public health ads have also run here, with a new set starting last week. Right now, many New Zealanders have flu, but there are ways we can all help to stop the spread of flu to others. If you are sick, try to avoid crowds at gatherings such as hui, church meetings, even tangi. But if you have to be there, try to avoid close contact. Things like a kiss or a hongi may have to take a back seat for a few days. The government's relied heavily on the media to get key messages out, but has been less forthcoming with information about patients and deaths. Jim Tucker is head of journalism at the Fitty Raya Journalism School in Wellington. He says barring some early hysteria, the media's done well, although information about deaths has appeared tardy. There have been some rather long delays before we've heard about people dying, up to four or five days, six days, and then suddenly a death is reported. That seems unusual, and I think that has probably led to some alarm from people. I think there's also been some misunderstanding as to what other factors may have been involved in the deaths. Was it just swine flu, or did they have other illnesses or, or bad health? So I think there has been a problem with that. Most deaths here from swine flu so far have involved people with other underlying medical conditions. Swine flu's proving more adept than seasonal flu at getting into lungs and causing pneumonia. Virologist Lance Jennings. As it's spread more widely, we've seen people with underlying medical conditions being affected and being admitted to hospital, and more recently, people dying, and we're now seeing otherwise healthy children succumbing to this disease. This is very suggestive, the virus evolving, but I, I think it's still the same virus at this point, and it's just insidiously spreading more widely through the community, and we're seeing different phases of, it, of its spread. Previously healthy people can die from any flu, either because the virus places an overwhelming load on their respiratory system or from secondary bacterial infections. That's the, one of the alarms just because the airway pressure is a bit high. Yeah, it's like a complicated video game. It's got a waveform that shows you the pressures in the patient's lungs and it shows the amount of air that's flowing in and out and there's a little 
Because most people are no longer being tested, hospitals are now the best indicator of the virus's impact. The head of intensive care at the Wellington Regional Hospital, Peter Hicks, monitors a life-saving ventilator as it helps a young swine flu patient breathe. This has caused some otherwise well people to have a severe lung disease needing help on a ventilator, which we would not see in the numbers that we're seeing it at the moment. It's also difficult in that they seem to need at least two weeks on a ventilator. Um, when you compare the average sort of length of stay in intensive care is two or three days. Dr Hicks says it's the unknowns that have been most challenging. It's just the not knowing and waiting and hoping things don't get worse than they have got. The Director of Public Health, Mark Jacobs. There's a lot of things we still don't know about swine flu and we will only know in retrospect. One of the things we don't know is exactly what proportion of, of people who actually get infected will go on to get more se severe illness and potentially to die. Now, WHO estimates that it's about 2% of cases become more seriously ill. The proportion of people who die having been infected, or the case fatality rate, is still very much unknown. And the reason for that isn't so much that we don't know about people dying as a result of swine flu, it's we don't know what the total number of cases is. And so, if you like, the people dying are the very small tip of a very large iceberg, but we don't know how big that iceberg is. ESR's Su Huang says she's never seen a virus replace normal seasonal flu so quickly. We should be concerned because we know influenza virus is notoriously unpredictable, changes really fast, and the New Zealand setting is quite different around the world. We have seasonal H1N1 virus circulating, which is, for example, Tamiflu resistant almost 100% Tamiflu resistant. On the other hand, we have this new AH1N1 virus circulating. If we have an opportunity in New Zealand to have the two viruses mixing together to generate a brand new virus, say a virus resistant to Tamiflu, we lost the most effective weapon we have, the only weapon we have so far. The biggest fear is that swine flu could merge with the AH5N1 virus, avian flu. It hasn't reached this country, but it kills up to 60% of those it infects. Wellington microbiologist Mark Jones. The journal The Lancet explained it very well. They said that if this highly transmissible flu gets back into East Asia and, and reassorts with avian flu, then you could end up with something that they've called the Armageddon virus and something that's going to spread like wildfire and kill people. Everyone agrees that the real-life dry run of the pandemic plans has been exceedingly useful. The Minister, Tony Ryle. We will learn a lot about how quickly public health should respond, the breadth of the response, the need to make sure that we get good support to help the effort, access to medications, access to different locations for people to be treated. Treasury's Mark Souden says for another time, information recording real-time effects of the pandemic would be helpful, as would plans for a pandemic that's not at the severe end. I think it would be worth going back and saying, well, do we almost have a, a plan B for a, for a mild pandemic, which does involve people doing things differently and obviously pressure on the health system, but we're not talking the really severe. I think we move from kind of zero to quite a severe pandemic in terms of the planning, and, and I think this will teach us to look at, at something in between as well. The National Pandemic Coordinator, Steve Brazier, is already planning for a possible second wave of the pandemic, which could bring stricter border controls if needed.
the most memorable part of what's happened so far is the way that the health sector has stood up incredibly quickly to respond to the type of event which we haven't seen for a couple of generations, if not three generations. And that's a tribute to the level of readiness they hold themselves at. Apart from that, it's been, I guess, a constant blur of action, which hopefully will settle down shortly. But it hasn't settled down yet. The worry now is how hospitals will cope in places like Auckland, where cases are still rising. That programme was written and presented by Karen Brown. Technical production was by Damon Taylor, and it was produced by Sue Ingram.